Many clinicians think that one of the most dangerous things a woman will ever do in her lifetime is have a baby. We certainly know that obstetrics is a very challenging career, both with clinicians on call and with actually treating two patients. Mm -hmm. But one of the topics that is not very well discussed is the impact of sexuality and when you're pregnant, how that certainly affects the relationship. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman, host of Sexual Health, General Health on ReachMD, and joining me today is Dr. Haywood Brown. He's professor and chair of Duke University and ACOG District 4 chair. Welcome, Haywood. It's always a pleasure to have you, and thank you for taking some time. We're at the National ACOG meeting here in San Francisco, and I know that you are a man of many talents and very, very busy. I wanted to just jump right in and talk about your research, because I know you have a side interest on pregnancy and sexual function. Tell me a little bit about what you were studying and the results. Well, Michael, the first study we did looked at sexual dysfunction that occurs in the postpartum period, and we were quite alarmed about the number of women who actually indicated that sexual life had really changed once they were postpartum, and we identified a number of different factors for that, whether it be breastfeeding, whether it be discomfort with breast milk leaking, or whether it just be they had a episiotomy or a laceration that was healing. And so that knowledge gave us a lot of information to suggest that if a woman had not and a couple had not returned to normal sexual function in at least eight weeks after they'd given birth to a child, that it was very distressing to the marriage or very distressing to the relationship, whereby about there was deterioration in the relationship. So those are the kind of things that led us to ask more questions. And the questions really come back to how healthy your sexual relationship was during the pregnancy itself. And that allowed us to ask certain questions about whether people were sexually active during their pregnancy and the reasons that it was probably important for them to have a healthy sexual relationship during their pregnancy because it led to a healthier sexual relationship postpartum. Right, and you bring up a, some very good points. Many women and men think that, you know, there's just fatigue and there's a third person mm-hmm. there, and we're not really addressing some of the biological issues. And, you know, I've read some studies, and they say that it's estimated that about 20% of couples never regain their sexual function that they had previously. And again, we see sometimes in obstetrics mm-hmm. that there are a lot of myths. And when I was doing my training, we very much would say pelvic rest, nothing mm-hmm. in the vagina, no sex, no douches, no tampons. We're really trying to protect the baby. And as we looked at the literature, we really found that that really didn't help promote or increase birth weight or affect mm-hmm. APGARs. All it did was really create more tension in a marriage and relationship. So what kind of advice do you give your young patients in terms of sexuality during their pregnancy? Well, it's very interesting because for women who've had any kind of pregnancy complication, particularly if they've had a pregnancy loss in the first trimester, you have to, first of all, convince them that the pregnancy loss had nothing to do with sexual activity. And neither would uh, having sexual activity during another pregnancy where there has been no complications thus far in the first trimester, it does not increase the risk that they would have a spontaneous pregnancy loss or miscarriage. That's number one. The other thing that you have to convince them of is that having sexual intercourse does not hurt the baby. You know, I've been asked questions of whether the baby's head is right there. Isn't he going to traumatize the baby's head? The answer is no. The baby has a cushion around it 
called amniotic fluid just for that reason, so it can bounce out of the way. The third thing that they ask is, well, doesn't it cause contractions? What about orgasm? Will or orgasm hurt the baby? And it allows them to be able to explain the fact that an orgasm in these is a contraction. It's a very short contraction. But, in, but it really is no data that would suggest that it decreases oxygenation at all during a normal, fetal, healthy growth process. And then patients said, well, maybe it will cause me to go into labor. I've heard that the prostaglandins will cause me to go into labor. And I would tell them if that was, if that was the case, that we will bottle it for post-date pregnancies and be able to do that. But it's clearly, there's no evidence that, it, that people go into labor from having intercourse either. And those are the kind of myths that you have to overcome about intercourse. Right, and I think that you make a very good point. I mean, if, if that was the case, then there wouldn't be any post-dates and there wouldn't be any issues with OBGYNs on collar 3AM babies. It's not as easy as just prostaglandins exactly. at the cervix. And I think it's important to recognize that how you did before mm -hmm. your pregnancy is how you're going to do thereafter. And certainly there are challenges. If you have a complication in your pregnancy like bleeding mm -hmm. or any other concerns, I think that it warrants a discussion with your obstetrician. Absolutely. And I know you're very involved with education. And you and I talk all the time that you know we feel comfortable talking about sex, but sometimes the residents and we're not really teaching and educating them how to talk about this topic, which is surprising. You know, OBGYNs really at the cusp of reproduction and talking about procreation and what have you, but we're still uncomfortable talking about intercourse. How do you overcome those barriers? Well, I think that individuals are just the way they are. And you have, if you are uncomfortable with certain types of things about yourself, maybe you're uncomfortable about asking those questions of your constituents, of your patients. But as obstetricians and gynecologists, if we don't take a good sexual history, we're not going to be able to do our patients the best good. And certainly in obstetrics, if you don't understand, again, about the sexual relationship of your couple, when it comes to them having a problem postpartum, you don't have any information to help to guide them. And so the answer is that you should ask questions about whether they're having a healthy sexual relationship. It will come up, for instance, if your patient does indeed have to go on bed rest, quote, for whatever reason, that has an impact. Those are the type of things that I think we just have to do a better job of. And it's like people talking about overweight. Some people are uncomfortable asking their patient about overweight. And therefore, they don't really educate them on the Institute of Medicine guidelines for weight gain. So the idea is, if you're a good clinician, you have to ask all the questions appropriate for reproductive health. And that's really what I'm trying to educate my young physicians on. Great. If you're just tuning in right now, you're listening to Sexual Health, General Health on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman. I'm here with Dr. Haywood Brown, who is the professor and chair at Duke University. He's also ACOG District 4 chair. Thank you, Haywood. I wanted to talk to you about in the third trimester, very often, you know, you have this very big belly and we sometimes get the questions about sexual positioning mm -hmm. or oral sex. How do you approach those delicate topics? I know in my office, we have some handouts and we have some visual aids. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's also important to know that sexual frequency clearly decreases as you approach the third trimester, primarily because it does become uncomfortable unless people change positions and learn that they can 
have sexual pleasure in different positions, particularly if people are used to having sex in certain types of ways. And so you can you talk about the fact that oral sex is reasonable for both partners, and we and people get concerned about things like air emboli, which they read about. And so the objective is to talk to your patient about how to have oral intercourse without necessarily putting air in the vagina. But first of all, you have to know to some degree what their sexual practices are. Now, I typically develop a fairly good relationship with my patient's partners, and even for same-sex partners. And I have a tendency to be able to say to them, you know, well, these are the things that I know, this is what the data shows, and there's no reason why you can't continue to have a healthy sexual relationship. But understand that sexual desire may also change, but sexual desire may change because it's uncomfortable because of the way the labia look, the fatness in the labia, the size of the belly. And so you really have to be prepared to improvise in order to keep your sexual relationship going. And then we talk to patients about, you know, just caressing techniques, still having a date night. And I would tell you that one of the challenges that I think people have, you know, children clearly change your sexual relationship, particularly once the baby gets home and is crying every two hours, et cetera, et cetera. And so, again, I get back to the fact that having a healthy sexual relationship during the pregnancy promotes a healthier sexual relationship after the baby gets here. What about breastfeeding? And very often we see women who are breastfeeding round the clock and they develop severe vaginal and vulvar dryness. What are your thoughts about minimally absorbed local estrogen products after the establishment of milk flow? Of course, we advocate moisturizers, lubricants, but women are very, very fearful about these products. Do you know any of the info on that? The data is very good that uh, minimally absorbed vaginal estrogens are very helpful to promote a little bit of epithelialization of the atrophy that occurs from breastfeeding because of lack of estrogen. So just replenishment of a little bit of estrogen really helps the discomfort that occurs from normal penile vaginal intercourse. And so yes, we would prescribe that quite often. And one last question before we conclude. I know we can go on for quite some time here, Haywood, and hopefully we'll be able to get you back. But one last question. I know we uh, often talk about what about the father of the baby watching the delivery? And sometimes that can be pretty traumatic for some men under certain circumstances. And I really advocated, you know, an open discussion between the clinician, the mother of the baby, as well as the father, and really have realistic expectations about what is going to go on. Because very often, you know, you and I, we both picked mm-hmm. up many fathers off the ground. Mm-hmm. So again, what are your thoughts about that? Because sometimes men just really don't want to be there. You know, I think you hit a very important point. There's been a study that was just released, and it was done in Europe that talked about how men were almost felt like if they didn't do it, they weren't manly. If they didn't go into the delivery room, if they didn't watch it, if they didn't participate, that was as though they committed a crime. And the idea is that there are men who are quite traumatized by this experience. And so in my experience, I give them the option of how much they want to participate. Uh, You don't necessarily have to cut the cord. You don't necessarily have to watch the baby come out. I'm going to take the baby. I'm going to put it on the abdomen, rub it off a little bit, let you cut the cord, and let you enjoy it. So I think the idea is to know how much they can absorb and give them the option and not not feel like they have to do various types of things. And a good clinician can work with them on those type of things and help them to feel more comfortable and really enjoy the birth process. 
Thanks, Haywood. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today, and we really had a really interesting discussion about pregnancy and its implications on sexuality and sexual health, not only for the woman who is carrying the baby, but also her partner, whether it is uh, a man or in same-sex couples. We certainly know that the pre-pregnancy sexual functioning will certainly influence how they do in the postpartum. And we really have to have a very comprehensive, dynamic view, not only about medical issues, but things like fatigue and mother-in-laws outstaying their welcome Mm -hmm. and other stressors that are going on for both the partners as you welcome a new baby into your home. I'm Dr. Michael Critchman, and you've been listening to Sexual Health, General Health on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash sexualmedicine to download this segment as well as others in the series. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you, Haywood, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us and talk about such an important topic. Thanks Michael, again. thank you for having me.